0: Let me, I'll put it right here. Well, it's really great to be back here in Kobe again uh, for a short time. I look out and I see many familiar faces, but also quite a few new time, to me anyway, faces. So I'll be looking forward to getting to uh, know you and to meet you. Uh, I was planning on using this sermon for the Sunday after Easter, but as you know, our we had to change our plans, and so instead of coming back in March like we originally had planned, this is now is our first Sunday back in Japan. While the most natural timing for this message is on the anniversary of the event we are looking at, it's appropriate any time of the year. So as we think about the life of one of Jesus' disciples, Thomas, let's use our imaginations to travel back to that first Sunday evening after the resurrection to see what we can learn from what took place then. It was on that Sunday evening, one week after the first Easter, that the risen Lord first appeared to Thomas, the last of the disciples to finally actually see him. In fact, it is this episode for which Thomas is best known. All four of the Gospel accounts mention his name, but only the book of John really tells us anything at all about Thomas. The other three only mention his name in the list of the 12 disciples. Thus, Thomas wasn't a key figure like Peter and John were. Well, let's look uh, for a moment at what we know about this man who ancient tradition says went all the way to South India and founded what came to be known as the Maritama Church, an ancient church which actually does appear to date from the first century A.D. In our scripture reading from John, we read about the story of Thomas, the doubts he had, and how they were dealt with. Perhaps a close look at his story will help us with our own doubts as well. First of all, we note that Thomas wasn't with the other disciples when Jesus first appeared to them after his resurrection. And he can't believe what he's being told. He obviously thinks they've gone off the deep end, and he says that he won't believe unless he sees and even feels the scars of Jesus' crucifixion. It is from this incident that he gets his nickname, Doubting Thomas. We use that expression today as a figure of speech to refer to someone who doesn't really have a valid reason to doubt something and yet does so anyway. But I sometimes wonder if that's really being fair to poor old Thomas. Was he really a doubter? Was he guilty of downright unbelief? In this scientific age, an age in which we are taught to question things, This this issue can can cause some confusion, and so this incident in Thomas's life has a very modern, up-to-date message for our world today. In our modern world, it is not uncommon for people to try to avoid becoming committed to anything. We moderns have been termed the uncommitted generation, And I think there is a considerable amount of truth to it. We are often a generation of detachment, a generation of spectators rather than participants. One very appropriate bumper sticker I saw a few years ago says it like this, and I think this pretty well sums it up. I am neither for nor against apathy. Another one with a similar sarcastic message read, Apathy is rampant, but who cares? When the disciples met that first evening after the resurrection, why was only Thomas not present there with the rest? Perhaps there was some extraordinary reason, but in all probability, he probably was just down on everything and wanted to escape from the world into his own depression. He wasn't there when the risen Jesus came into their midst so unexpectedly. And he is representative of so many people in today's world. Why wasn't he there? I think it is because of the kind of temperament and personality that Thomas had. While the references to Thomas are not very many, Every one of them seems to paint him with a kind of a negative, pessimistic attitude. It just seems to be a part of his personality. For instance, in John 11:14 14 to 16, in connection with the death of Jesus' good friend and benefactor, Lazarus, it says, So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Let us go to him. Then Thomas said to his fellow disciples, Let's all go along with the teacher so that we may die with him. Kind of a strange response, isn't it? Well, let's just go to the funeral. Maybe we'll all die. And again in John 14, when Jesus is telling them about, uh, telling them that he is going to prepare a place for them and that they know the way that leads to the place where he's going, it is Thomas that almost rudely interrupts him by saying, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? That is probably something I would have wanted to ask as well if I had been there. Thomas seems to be very much like a lot of people today with his negative thinking. He expects the worst to happen in life. He looks at life through rather pessimistic and negative eyes, and he seems afraid to ever expect anything good to happen. We don't know why he was this way. We don't know the forces that shaped his personality. But I would dare say that with all of the fractured and fragmented families in today's world, with all the fighting and the instability, there are millions of people in the world today like Thomas. He is representative of a growing segment in many societies, disillusioned, pessimistic, and half cynical in their outlook. They've been hurt very badly during their developmental years, and their great defense is a sort of a cynicism about everything. I can just imagine Thomas that evening of the resurrection not going to be with the rest of the disciples and saying to himself, hmm, I was afraid that's uh, along that this is the way it was going to turn out. I, I've always had my doubts about him. It's the third day now, and and nothing has happened. It's all over. Although that is not that much different from what the other disciples were also thinking, thinking prior to the resurrection, Thomas did the worst thing he could have done in this kind of a situation. He went off by himself, away from the fellowship of others. He neglected what he needed most of all at that time the fellowship of those who were going through the same situation that he was. He nursed his sorrow and grief alone, and like a wounded wolf off in the distance howling at the full moon, he made himself feel worse with every howl. What a tragedy. He missed out on that glorious Sunday evening meeting when Jesus came walking in through the door. Sam Shoemaker, a well-known preacher of a former generation, often said this concerning how to increase one's faith. The first step in getting faith is to be with those who have faith. Now, the worst thing that you can do when doubts and questions come knocking at the back door of your mind is to shut yourself up with your own troubled thoughts. The best thing you can do is to get into the company with other Christians especially those who have faced the same sorts of problems that you are facing. Yet so often today, just as Thomas did, people tend to get into the rut of allowing their doubts and disillusionments disillusionments to take over, which causes them to forsake Christian fellowship, which in turn then increases their doubts and disillusionments. It can become a kind of a, a vicious cycle, which makes them all the more cynical. Now, having doubts in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, if we honestly face our doubts and don't simply brush them under the rug and try to hide from them, doubts can play an important role in developing one's faith. Someone once said, he who has never deeply doubted has likewise never deeply believed. But in order for doubts to play their proper role, we have to realize that we must work through them and search out, search out answers to resolve them. Otherwise, they can paralyze us and feed off of each other in a vicious cycle leading up to hardened unbelief. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5:21. Test all things, put them to the test, and hold on to what is true. Don't simply believe your doubts, or even your faith for that matter, until you do a reality check on them. Check them out against the objective established facts of science and history, for instance. As an aside, let me mention that this is something that is sorely lacking in today's society. Many people have never learned to think critically for themselves, and this skill is perhaps more critical today than at any other time in history, as our youth are being bombarded with all sorts of idealistic claims by a wide variety of philosophies and religious cults that an objective reality check would quickly expose as false. But when one hasn't learned how to think critically, then one is vulnerable to most any belief system that simply feels good. Well, returning to the daily lives we all experience, we know that when it comes to our spiritual lives, there are days when church or Bible study is anything but exciting. You may find this a bit hard to believe, but when I was pastoring a local church, there were occasional Sunday mornings when my initial reaction upon getting up and getting ready to preach was something like this. I sure wish I could take the day off and just forget about church today. Uh, Instead of being like the optimist who greets the new day with, good morning, God, I became like the pessimist who wakes up with, good God, morning." And I just seemed to be going through the motions with not much really there. But it's funny. So often, it seems that at times like that, the presence of Jesus just seems to show up unexpectedly into that service. And it was suddenly all different. And after it was over, it is as though he said to me, I just wanted you to know that I'm the one who really does it all anyway. It's not really you. Yes, it is when we are gathered together as his people that the fresh winds of the Spirit blow across our hearts to reignite the smoldering kindling into a fire once again. But Thomas didn't do that. And he missed out on that great moment. So when he finally did greet, uh, meet uh, with the others and they told him that they had seen Jesus alive again, he was in a very doubting, disbelieving mood. Now, if Thomas would have responded with something like this, wow, that's unbelievable. I'm having trouble believing it, but if he were only to appear to me, then I could really believe. If he had said something like that, then it would have indicated a desire to believe. It would have been positive in tone, and would have been really saying something like, um, I really want to believe, but I just need a little boost to get me over that hump. But no, Thomas's reply was totally negative and even rather defiant. Unless I see the scars of the nails in his hands and put my finger on those scars and my hand is his side, I will not believe. Now, whether he pounded the table and he did that or not, I don't know, but anyway, it was very negative. Would we be that blatant in expressing our own doubts? Would we dare to challenge Jesus and say, unless you appear to us coming through that door right now, just like you did with the early disciples, I'm not going to believe you. Most of us here probably wouldn't, at least not in such a way that others would hear us. We just try to ignore and cover over our, our doubts with the result that our spiritual lives end up rather dull and unexciting. But there are many people in today's world who do, in effect, just as Thomas did. They refuse to believe unless certain conditions are met. Unless you do this or or that, God, unless you answer me in the way I want you to and get me out of trouble, then I won't believe in you. Now, if one of my talents were drawing cartoons, which it certainly is not, I think I would like to draw one that goes something like this. Now, imagine, for, if you will, there's a small circle over to one side in the picture representing the Earth. And on top of that insignificant little ball stands a, a puny, you know, human being, pea brain human being, who doesn't really even understand something so seemingly simple as a, a blade of grass or a little insect. Imagine him shaking his fist up at God, who we picture as somehow sitting among those billions of galaxies of a universe so vast that we can't even begin to take it all in. This insignificant, puny little human being is standing there, shaking his fist at God, and saying, Unless you do this for me, I won't believe in you. It would be funny if it weren't so tragic. It would be just the opposite of what the view of the psalmist said in Psalm 8. And I want to read just a couple of verses from that. We were going to have it in the service, but it didn't get in, so I'll just read it here. This is from Psalm 8, verses 3 to 5. Says, when I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. He realizes, that's all says, realizes how insignificant a human being seems when compared to the heavens, and yet that we are also very special to God. Well, how does Jesus, Jesus handle this situation? How does he approach Thomas after his defiant unbelief. Apparently, the other disciples had convinced Thomas that he ought to stay around, and so he was there the next Sunday with them behind the locked doors. And sure enough, Jesus came right into that locked room and stood among them. And then he singled out Thomas lovingly, but firmly, just repeating back the same words. Thomas, put your finger here, and look at my hands. Then reach out your hand and put it in my side. But Thomas didn't get that far. In typical Middle Eastern cultural style, he simply bowed down to the ground and said, My Lord and my God. Why didn't Thomas need to have his demands fulfilled? Because at that instance, a sort of double-barreled impact swept over him. He saw the scars and he heard the words, now those scars that he saw identified Jesus as the man he had walked with and talked with for some three years and who he had seen die on the cross and be buried. He recognizes him instantly as that man. But the words identify Jesus to be uh, much more than just a man. How did Jesus know that those were his exact words? The words pierced through to his heart and shattered any pretense that Thomas still had. The thought must have rushed through his mind. Oh, he's been with me all the time. He knows all my inner thoughts. He heard my wild words, and yet he still loves me and forgives me and still wants me to be his disciple. And instinctively, he says, my Lord and my God. Thomas sees himself in the mirror of his own words that Jesus quotes back to him. And then Jesus tells him to stop doubting and to believe. Isn't it interesting that this disciple, who had the most doubt, who early, who earlier had asked Jesus how he could possibly follow him when he had no idea where he was going, and who had refused to believe the other disciples that Jesus was alive, isn't it interesting that it is the same man who makes the fullest confession of faith in Jesus as the Christ by saying, my Lord and my God. Remember that Thomas and the others were all Jews who had from their earliest childhood been instilled with a firm belief that there is only one God who is pure spirit. And thus the idea that the one true God could possibly take on the form of a human being was utterly foreign to them. And yet, when confronted with the evidence, Thomas instinctively calls Jesus, my Lord and my God. This episode with Thomas concludes as Jesus gives a word of comfort and encouragement to all of his future followers by saying to Thomas, do you believe because you see me? How happy are those who believe without seeing me? This is the most important thing we can learn from the life of Thomas. Are you a so-called doubting Thomas? Well, God's good news for you is that he doesn't reject you for your doubts. No, he's always there ready to assist you in overcoming those doubts and confirming your faith. But he has created us as free moral beings and he won't force us to believe in him. In Thomas's case, Thomas could have let his doubts and negative thinking so control him that he wouldn't have allowed his faith to be revived. He could have refused to remain in fellowship with the other disciples and to be with them the next Sunday. But he didn't. In reality, faith and doubt, belief and unbelief, are like two spiritual forces working in our lives in opposite directions sort of like a spiritual tug of war. And in time, we will be won by the one most often that we yield to. Which the, the one we most often yield to, that's the one we will be won over by. You can cultivate an outlook of neg- negativism, distrust, and cynicism. And as you do, you will become negative and unbelieving. Or, you can cultivate the habit of faith, expectancy, hopefulness, and trust. And your life will be shaped by those. Let's each pause and ask ourselves, what am I living by this morning? Am I living by my doubts or by my faith? Some of you may be asking, well, Reverend, don't you have any doubts? You bet I do and some pretty big ones have made assaults on the doors of my mind from time to time, especially when I've been emotionally down and physically tired. But I don't live by my doubts. I live by my faith. I should also add, however, that the kind of faith described in the Bible is not what many non-believers think it is, namely a blind faith without any evidential support that you are to conjure up on your own, just pull yourself by your bootstraps and believe, you know, that's just based on feelings. We are not asked to just believe without any evidence. Thomas, of course, had the direct evidence of the risen Jesus standing right there before him. That's never happened to me, and I would rather expect that is the same with all of you as well. Nevertheless, we are given all sorts of evidence of God's existence, along with the historical evidence of the reality of Jesus, in addition to whatever individual experiences we have of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, that inner witness of the Holy Spirit. So true biblical faith is not a wishful thinking kind of blind faith. It is a faith that is backed up by evidence. Nevertheless, we must still act upon that faith, It has been said that no one ever really believes anything until he or she acts upon it. And that's true. Really believing in something means acting upon that belief. Let's take the example of an airplane. I just flew one a couple of days ago. It is quite possible to believe that a jetliner can fly you across the ocean, but to not have enough trust in it to personally get on it yourself. The people who get on the plane, however, not only entrust their lives to the plane, but also to a pilot they have never met before. Even when they get on the plane, they can't see the pilot because he or she is on the other side of a door that says, No entry. Now, I'm not trying to make the pilot into the equivalent of God, but for, uh, you know they're all imperfect human beings just like you and me. And even the automatic pilot fails sometimes. But in his role of a pilot, there is a point of similarity between this human being and God. Just as with a human pilot, it's as if there is a wall between us and God that prevents us from actually entering directly into God's presence. That wall, as it were, is the result of human sin. It's because of the sin in our lives that there is a no-entry sign, as it were, on the door. But if we entrust our lives to our spiritual pilot, Jesus, we can be assured of reaching our ultimate destination when our plane takes off for the last time. That is an example of what belief and faith are all about. They are something we have to act upon in order to be actualized and made real. So, which is it that you will live by? Your faith or your doubts? In time, all of us are forced to either live by our faith or by our doubts. Either, in time, either your faith will dispel your doubts or your doubts will drown your faith. So, which are you going to live by? Stop your doubting and believe, Jesus says. How happy are those who believe without seeing me. When Jesus appeared to his disciples, each time he greeted them with, Peace be with you. I think this was far more than just a polite greeting. Just prior to his death, he said this Peace is what I leave with you. It is my own peace that I give you. I do not give it as the world does. Do not be worried and upset. Do not be afraid. And he certainly must. referring to more than worrying about one's physical safety. It also includes being upset about by one's doubts and fears. Peace be with you. My peace I give to you. The gospel according to the life of Thomas. What is it? It's that our doubts are, even though our doubts are often strong and we have trouble really trusting in the Lord, If we cultivate faith through worship, reading the scriptures and Christian literature, and maintaining our prayer life and fellowship with other Christians, God will strengthen our faith. For it is he that gives us faith in the first place, as well as the strength to live by that faith. Have doubts been crowding into your mind lately? Is yours a doubting faith? Jesus says to you right now, peace be with you. Stop doubting. And believe we'll be singing our closing hymn just a minute here you know number 327 and it seems to have been written from Thomas's experience, especially that last verse crown him the Lord of love behold his hands inside those wounds yet visible and beauty glorified but first the offerings coming up Thank you Tim Yes